Hi, I'm Terry Zabolski, pastor of Grace Community Church in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I'd like to thank you for listening to this week's message. I hope and trust that God's Word is a blessing to you as you live for Him each and every day. Take your Bible and let's look at Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, as we continue in uh, this would be our second Christmas message of the season. Last week we had the joy of looking at Jesus' family tree and stood amazed at the wonder of the genealogy uh, that uh, the Lord came from. And uh, what grace to see uh, such sinners uh, built into this lineage uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ. The closer you look at what God has done, the more amazed you will be. And we marveled at that. And today we want to we'll consider a sermon I've entitled, How Will You Respond? It really, in essence, is a very simple sermon. And if you think about it, I, I like the simple ones the best. So the reason is I sort of get them, you know. I don't know if you like me that way. They stick with me longer. I muse on them more clearly, and it, uh, it penetrates my heart more deeply. And so today, a very simple sermon as what we're going to do is simply observe the different ones that were around the nativity and around the area at the time of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ and watch how they respond to the news and to the birth of uh, the greatest gift ever given. I don't know what the greatest gift you ever gave at Christmas time is, uh, or the greatest gift you ever received, but the greatest gift ever given of all times is the birth of God's own Son. And the Word became flesh, that's Jesus, and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, John said, the glory of the only begotten of God, full of grace and truth. Well, how will you respond? Well, you know, we live in a world of news. Global news, 24-7. It's news saturation. It's news around the clock. It's, it's ad nauseum. How many of you got sick of the election and all of that that went on for weeks and weeks and months and months? I was exhausted at the end of the primaries. I was, I was completely petered out. I hear any more. And just think of 24-hour news. If you didn't have enough with CNN, you've got to what, Fox? And you've got all the others over in, uh, in Doha. They have, they have CNN. They have the BBC. They have uh, Al Jazeera, which is the Arab news, 24-hour network. I mean, it's ad nauseum. What do people do that are with the news uh, cast and that whole industry when there's not much news? I mean, they're sitting around waiting for hope and praying something will happen, right? It's a funny, funny type of thing when you think about it. And when things are going peace on earth, it's, there's no news and nobody tunes in and nobody, uh, uh, you know, the sponsorship drops and all the rest. I'm telling you, it doesn't matter what happens, even in some remote spots of our world. I mean, really, you can have a suicide bomber in Afghanistan, in some town you and I cannot even pronounce, blow up the shop and maybe kill the shopkeeper, and uh, before you know it, it's blasted around the world 24-7. And uh, if you're anywhere near my age, you know the change that's taken place in newscasting. I mean, it used to be the venerable 6 and 6, it used to be 630 the network news, and there were only three. That's hard for the younger ones to remember, you know. Only three, and they came on, and it went from 6.30 to 7. It was an hour, and I remember they cut the one back, David uh, Huntley, and what was the other one, Brinkley? Yeah, and Walter Conkright. Oh, I loved his voice, right? And uh, some of the rest, Smith, Howard K. Smith. Some of you remember that well. You're nodding, you know. Smith's son took over after him, I think. It's hard to imagine. You had to wait around for, uh, for the news until 6 or 6.30, uh, and then it was only half an hour. And then you caught the local news at 
you know. And that was it. And now it's 24-7 anywhere in the world. And if that weren't enough, the Internet and all that that's on there, it's just overload. And what happens is it does affect you and it does affect me. We're not made to process one disaster after another after another, you know, in, in like one-minute sound bites. And the result is that you and I can get very hard. I mean, how else do you deal with it? you got this atrocity here and this horrible thing down here, and these kids get butchered over here. I mean, you can hardly, it hardly hits you, and then it's, and stay tuned, we have a commercial. You know, it's just, it has a hardening effect. We can't process it as fast as it comes in this oversaturation of Newsday in which we live. It hardens us, I think. I urge you to turn it off. Somebody, uh, somebody said, if you're afraid to go outside and all the rest, then, you know, are, are you watching 24-hour news? And are you reading all the papers? Why don't you turn off some of that stuff? Just turn it off for a while. Open your Bible. Read that. Get into some good books and read that. And uh, the world may look a little better than otherwise, and you may not be as afraid to go outside. I mean, how do you respond to all the stuff going on? It's news overload, if you will, anywhere in the world. That's the way it is. I lived when, uh, a number of years ago as an exchange student in, in the jungles of Brazil, and little huts there, they had nothing, except you could see some TV antenna going out. And people that had nothing watched the news. And today they watch it around the world, wherever they are, in faraway places and even here in the States. Well, it's hard to imagine any news more wonderful than the, the birth announcement of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. That's better than the Super Bowl. That's better than who won the election. That's better than the, uh, re the recession is over, jobs are on the increase. That would be great news. That'll come, Lord willing, one of these days soon. But the greatest news that, it, uh, that has ever been, ever been, ever announced was the birth of the Savior. The greatest news, and it should have had an enormous response. But just like today, uh, there was a response by those who heard it, but I'm reminded as I studied the text, most of the response was not appropriate. For God made flesh the Savior of the world. I'm reminded if the president showed up, there would, have been a, there would be a great response. Isn't that not true? Get, to, get ready, he's coming. There'd be an advance team that would come in, and there'd be a lot of excitement brewing. How about God made flesh, the promised one, the deliverer? There was a response, and there was a response by all sorts of people, and we're going to note that much of it was not appropriate. And so I ask, with Christmas to be celebrated in just a few days, how have you and how will you respond to the Christ of Christmas. Well, there are three responses that we're going to note in our text this morning of the news of the birth of the Savior. And it ought to urge us to worship the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Now, here's the danger. Don't allow your familiarity with the event, Christmas. Don't allow your familiarity to hinder you from worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, there's an expression that says familiarity breeds contempt. And we know what that means. It breeds contempt. But you know what? Familiarity also breeds ignorance. We saw that in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ there in Nazareth. I mean, he was raised in that town with his stepfather Joseph, carpenter, Mary, the other brothers and sisters of the offspring of Mary and Joseph. And then finally, uh, after his baptism, after his temptation, he went back to the hometown and uh, he teaches in the synagogue and they were ready to rush him out and kill him. They thought they knew him. Aren't you? Isn't he the son of? Isn't he? We know him. You see, familiarity in that regard led to contempt for him. We know him. Jesus said, listen, a prophet is not without honor except in the hometown crowd. We know him. 
We know him, or so they thought. Well, we know Christmas, don't we? We know the nativity. We know the story. We've heard it, yea, a thousand times. But it's my prayer that with great freshness again that you and I would consider the nativity, the wonder of it all, the the glory of what God has done with a sense of joy and excitement, adoration and praise, that this Christmas that you and I would respond as if it were for the very first time, hearing the story and seeing the Savior born and all that's meant in that. That's our challenge. Well, the three responses. We find in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2, and look at that, if you will. We'll find the first response. There's some people responded to the birth of Jesus with utter hatred. And you would uh, imagine that to be, uh, among others, uh, King Herod, and you'd be right if you would guess that. Look at uh, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2, verse 1. And after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. And when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them, where is the Christ who is to be born? In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied. This is what the prophet has written. Micah 5.2, but you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people, Israel. Then Herod, Herod, uh, King Herod called the Magi secretly, and he found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem, and he said, go and make a careful search for the child. And as soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented with them gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. And when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, and take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. And stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. And so he got up and he took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed into the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. And when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magis. And then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. And after Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in Egypt, and he said, Get up and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. And so he did just that. Well, the first response to the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ is presented in the text. And I'm reminded it's, he is not the only one who has responded this way. And that is uh, a response filled with uh, distress anger, jealousy, and hatred, and represented by Herod. King Herod was deeply troubled when he heard the news that there was another who was called the king of the Jews, in verses 2 and 3. This Herod, Herod was the one who was Herod, he was called the Great. 
Uh, he is the first uh, of the many uh, number. There are a number of Herods uh, that are mentioned in the New Testament, and he was uh, the first that it was uh, so mentioned. He was actually uh, under Roman rule. Don't think he was some sort of sovereign. He wasn't. He really was a Roman governor, but uh, had received the title king, but uh, really was under the thumb of, uh, of the emperor of the Roman Empire. Uh, at this point, Herod was in the last few years of his life. Uh, his uh, reign had uh, been a long reign. He was a great builder. In fact, you can go to Israel today, some of you have, and stand at the retaining wall to the uh, Temple Mount, and you can see some of the great stones that uh, Herod had built in building that great plush temple there that uh, was standing in the days of the Lord Jesus when he went in there uh, and was teaching the, uh, the scribes and the, uh, uh, the teachers of the law there when he was 12. It was the great temple. He was the great builder. Uh, he is Herod the Great. Now he's in the last few years of his life, uh, this uh, man, Herod the Great. He was a wicked man. He was evil up to the tonsils, so to speak, and beyond. Uh, he was so evil and jealous of his wife, he threatened never killed, and then he finally did. He killed his own wife, he killed her mother, he killed his, her grandmother. If that weren't enough, he killed his three sons. He was jealous of them, thought that they might do him in and take his crown, so he kills his own son. He kills hundreds of his own faithful servants. This guy, this guy was not a nice guy. He was evil incarnate. It's, a, it's another picture of a miniature uh, Satan, if you will, a miniature Hitler, if you will, uh, especially as he's satanically inspired to, to try and kill this one who was the promised seed of the woman, the one born of Mary, the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm reminded that... Uh, not everybody is singing Christmas carols at Christmas time, O little town of Bethlehem, or all the glorious songs of the Lord Jesus Christ and all that the first advent meant. There are some that, that hate the thought of it. They sit in the universities and chair departments. They uh, today uh, stand in many pulpits and churches and places where God once worked greatly and which uh, no longer believe the gospel. There may be a few in the pews that do of older age and remembering a different day, but those standing there really despise secretly, deceptively, and would kill the baby if they could. Uh, and Herod's response is insidious. It, it really is. Filled with evil. He was paranoid. And it's right he should be. Listen, if if somebody's really after you, you're not paranoid, you got a problem. Paranoia is where you're afraid someone's going to get you, right? It's often symptomatic of a bad conscience. God has made us with a conscience. You feel your days doing wrong, you feel your days doing evil, you are going to have a hard time sleeping at night. And Herod, that was his case. He was a man with a bad conscience and a bad heart because he was an evil man evil, I say to you. Herod's initial response to the news of the birth of Jesus in verses 4 to 13, we read that, he calls for his religious people to come and to tell him where this birth occurred. It's one of the great passages in our Bible. In chapter 2, it's quoted in, in Matthew's gospel in verses 5, 6, and 7. And it's a quotation from Micah, sometimes called the Christmas Minor Prophet, identifying, O Bethlehem Ephrata, he tells us exactly the city in which the Lord Jesus would be born, the city of David, hundreds of years before. We've talked before in days gone by, most people send birth announcements after the baby is born. This week, Sarah had our little granddaughter, uh, a little Harper Faith, and she'll send out birth announcements far and wide to celebrate with us the, board, the birth of our little baby girl. Micah, by God's inspiration, sends the birth announcement to the city and all of that 
hundreds of years ahead of time. And so Herod, hearing this news, very deceptively calls in the teachers, the religious, if you will, avant-garde. Where is this, that this is to take place? And uh, they tell him right exactly. They didn't even have to have a huddle, a holy huddle. Let's figure it out. No, they knew Micah 5 to Bethlehem. Out of you will come the ruler. Well, if that weren't enough, then second, he calls the wise men, the magi, he calls them to himself to ascertain the time in which the king was born. Verse 7 of our text, he wants to find out where and when. He's snooping around. He hears there's another king. There's a, there's a hub-drub going on in the city of Jerusalem. Another king? I'm the king. We'll have no king but me. You can see his, his evilness in the closing days of his reign, this man with a bad heart and a bad conscience, and yet uh, his real desire is not to come and worship, though he said that. Look at that, the end of 8. It's filled with utter deception. Let me know when this was, he says to the Magi, so that I too may go and worship him. What a liar. He expresses the lies of his father, Satan, who was a liar from the beginning. So he is uh, almost incarnating the satanic deception and hatred of Satan himself, who has sought through the years to destroy the promised seed of which the lineage would come forth the birth of Christ. We see it not only in the book of uh, Esther with Haman trying to destroy all the Jews and so extinguishing the, the, the family line of the seed of of the woman through Abraham, through David, down to be born of Mary. We see it uh, in more modern times, in uh, this side of, of the birth of Christ, the extinguishing uh, through hate, uh, through uh, Hitler, Adolf Hitler and Mussolini, the, but primarily Hitler, the extinguishing of the Jews, the hated uh, anti-Semitic view that, that, that has popped itself up through the Romans and the Greeks and Tiapas, Epiphanes and, and others, the hatred of the seed and line and the lineage and the hatred ultimately of this, uh, this one that would be born. He wanted to kill the Christ child. We see that in verse 13. Exactly. I want to kill him. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. The angel uh, informs Joseph to get out of town and get out of town fast. Well, I'm reminded, like many hard-hearted people today, Herod's response revealed... He wanted to know nothing, nothing of God's way except to eliminate. Such an attitude reveals pride, self-interest, and greed for power. I'm reminded not all people are thrilled with the announcement that God has sent His only Son, born of the Virgin Mary. Some rather deceptively would like to grab the child and destroy it. I'll never forget being in Bethlehem and and seeing uh, there in one of the buildings, one of the ancient buildings there, a little window with a glass plate in front. It had, uh, as uh, was told to us by the lecturer, some of the bones of the babies that were destroyed when Herod sent to that town and destroyed all the male children that were two years or less. Now, whether they were or they not, who can say? I don't know. But it was a terrible tragedy, for he tried to, in a general dragnet sort of a way, go in and try and extinguish the life and kill this one who was born. He refused God's solution. He refused God's way. And he died and perished. There's only a heaven and there's only a hell, and we have no news in the word that he has ever redeemed. Even though he was so close the birth of the, the Christ child was in his reign, and yet he missed the Christ of Christmas. There may be some in your family that, that mock and make fun and would kill Christ if they could. 
Maybe that's been you in days gone by. Maybe there are, there are those that you work with that make fun and, and ridicule the, the holiness of that holy night. And uh, it penetrates your heart and wounds you. You know that they're lost. They need the gospel. They're, they're in darkness. They're uh, of their father, the devil. You know that. They need to be saved. Don't be surprised by that. We live in such a world. The Lord came unto his own, and his own received him not. In fact, they nailed him to the cross. And many today would do that. And sometimes they hurt you, and they hurt me through things they say and do. Because ultimately and finally, they really want to kill God. They can't get to him. He's risen. He's in heaven. He's coming again. Powerful, the mighty God. And so you are little Christ. And so you and I will suffer and be called to suffer and enter into the fraternity of suffering and the privilege of suffering. So don't be surprised by that. Stand and count it a joy. For he who endured so much for you and for me. I'm reminded the first response in the text is one of hatred and one of murderous thoughts in attempts. Now, there's a second response as we look at this uh, advent, this coming of Christ at this first Christmas. Some people respond with indifference to the birth of the Savior, and you know that. This is the vast horde of humanity. Many, many people. This is most people. Many people hear about the birth of, of, of Christ, God's promised Son. They look at it, they hear about it, they may even hum the song. They may fill churches today. And then they leave and go out, and it makes absolutely no difference in their life whatsoever. The spirit of Christmas, the spirit of giving, and that's about as deep as it gets. Now they look, they hear, they see the song. They look at a nativity, but it makes no difference. I'm reminded we see that in the text as well. In chapter 2, verses 4, 5, and 6, we see the chief priests. Let me go back and point out them. They are, they are players in this narrative. 4, 5, and 6, here's Herod, and when he called together all the people's chief priests, it was so perverted they had two chief priests, and the teachers of the law, they were the scribes. Most of them were probably Pharisees. He calls them together and he asks them where the Christ was to be born. Well, you see, the chief priests were asked by Herod for their insights regarding the birth of this king in verse 8. Now, you should know that the chief priests were considered to be the number one. By God's design, they were to be the the spiritual men, the, the, the chief holy men of the nation. They were. It was perverted by this day. They were of the line and lineage of, of Aaron, Moses' brother. They were to be involved with lifelong teaching the people the scriptures. They were to teach the word of God to the people. They were to see that the priests were trained up in the things of God. They were to be God's man. They were set the pace. And here, this pagan, wicked king who wants to kill this, this other king. Who's this king? I'm the king. And he comes to them. They're there. They knew the text. Now, how do they respond, though? How do they respond? Best thing I can see is they responded with complete indifference. By this time, the high priests were some sort of upper crust, sort of aristocracy in Israel. They wielded great political power. They were wealthy. They were well-educated. But it seems like they were completely spiritually lost. What a sad thing to have what should be spiritual, godly leaders lost indifferent to the greatest event, the incoming of God's own Son, Emmanuel. And they're even quizzed about it. They know where he's to be born. I say they were indifferent because the text never says that they got drift of it 
and put on their Nikes and ran down the road to Bethlehem. I'm out of here. What's this? I got to check this out. This could be all important. This could be the thing we're waiting for all these years. I can't believe it's our day. I don't see any of that response. Complete indifference. Oh, well, pass the potatoes. That's interesting. Next, who's playing sports? What about the University of Jerusalem football team? You know, please, in a day of news, here's the greatest news. Not hatred, at least not yet. When he's arrested, we may see it, and we do, but complete indifference. Indifference. And yet they knew about it. They knew even the facts. It's amazing to me. It's amazing how terrible it is when religious leaders are indifferent and even deny the birth of God's own Son, the Lord Jesus, Emmanuel. And I'm saying to you this, it's a sad reality that many churches are apostate. They no longer believe in the miraculous, that God is above and beyond us. We're so puny, frail, and small, can hardly do much. And God is able to do whatever He wants at any time. He never denies Himself, but the earth is not a closed system. He can work inside at any moment and does. And yet there are some that stand in pulpits and pontificate. One such man is, is of another generation, Pastor Harry Emerson Fosdick. This guy was so apostate, the Presbyterians threw him out, defrocked him, took away his ordination. His theology was horrible, denying the tenets of the faith, pontificating and saying, there's no God with us. In fact, I quote something he said after he left, incidentally, he left, he was thrown out of the Presbyterian church, he became a Baptist. In the First Baptist Church of New York City, horrible in his liberalism. That church was a a dark place for many, many thousands of people for many years. This is what he said at one point at the end of one of his sermons. I want to assure you that I do not believe in the virgin birth of Christ, and I hope that none of you do as well. I'm telling you how terrible is that. This chief priest should have known. Whoa, they knew the Scriptures. They were immersed in it, trained in it. They trained others in it. They were to train the people. They get the word from the Magi and the stir of the crowd, and they could care less to the point they wouldn't even go and check it out. And never did. And people today are like that. They write books and stand in pulpits and they're on TV. People that others look up to, but ultimately and finally as spiritual... They don't believe in it. But don't let that be you. Don't let that be you. But they're not the only ones. I say the chief priest. There are more. There are more than that. How about the scribes? B. The scribes were also consulted about the birth of this one. And they responded poorly to it as well. These were primarily the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the separatists. They knew the word. They tried to practice a legalistic type of religion. They're often referred to as the scribes or the lawyers. And they taught the people. They, uh, they were thought by the people to be the educated elite, to be the scholars. And they knew Micah 5 too. And when you read it, you don't get the sense that they hesitated at all. Where's he to be born? Oh, that's an easy one. Come on, give me a tough one. Micah 5 too. They knew it. They knew it. And they could quote it, and they did. However, they refused to run down the road to Bethlehem to worship the Savior. You don't see it. You don't see any. Well, we better send a committee down there. We better send our best down there. Nobody goes down there. Complete indifference. And I'm saying to you that's the complete wrong response to Emmanuel, to the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. It wasn't openly hostile like Herod. It was just, nah, we don't give a rip. We don't really care. 
And there are the, that, that, and that describes the mass of humanity today, as I see it. And maybe even you. The familiarity of, uh, of the message is like, oh, I've heard that before. I've heard it. I've heard it. I've heard it. And maybe it reveals the fact that you're not saved. And maybe you're, you are saved, and, and you're far off the path, and you're not where you ought to be. And it doesn't ring with the same joy and, and glory that it ought to. You need to come back. You need to resist that hardness of our hearts. You ought not to be indifferent. Say, Lord, help me to celebrate with great freshness the wonder and the joy and the awe of the, of the coming of Christ. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, Jesus. I say to you, the scribes. The uh, Bible tells us that the not many wise, in 1 Corinthians 1, not many noble, but there are some. Not many. These were the scribes. These were the wise. These were the learned. Completely and utterly indifferent to the birth of the Savior. And finally, how about see the crowds in Jerusalem? The text is clear that when the Magi came into the city of Jerusalem from afar, they were asking all over the place, where is this one that was born uh, King of the Jews. Look at uh, uh, chapter 2, uh, verse uh, uh, 2. Here they are. Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? When they came into Jerusalem, and they, it was like they came into the gates, and they're like, where is he? Where is he? And, I mean, it was quite a stir to see these eastern uh, uh, noble folks, these wise ones come in, and, uh, and, and ask, and, and they're utterly dumbfounded that uh, the here is... Uh, the king of kings born, and people are like, what are you talking about? We have no idea, you know, and all this. And they're asking all over, and they continue to do so. Finally, it reaches up to Herod. That's the sense of this. He comes knocking on his door. That's when they, he calls him in and talks to Herod. But the people, the common people in the street, they're asking, in the, and, and the text actually tells us in verse 3 that when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. You've got the common folks everywhere. Hearing about the birth of God's own son and responding with complete, as best that I can tell from the text, complete and utter indifference. It's amazing to me. But if you look around at our world today, some things haven't changed much. It really hasn't. Complete and utter indifference. Oh, that's interesting. I've never heard that before. Oh, that's some piece of news. And what's next? Oh, yes, this and that. And it just kind of roll on without allowing it to make impact. Complete and utter indifference. Where is he? This one who is born King of the Jews. Well, like so many today, most are completely indifferent to the news of the Savior. Don't you be. Don't you be. Resist that. It's not Santa Claus and Jesus, and it's not gift-giving and, and singing the songs and carols and family. All these things are all, not Santa Claus, but all these things because of Christ. You know, the old adage, keep Christ in Christmas, was said a number of years ago, and that's right. He's the reason for the season. We would say that. We probably overworked that expression, but he is. He's the be-all, end-all. It's, it's, it's him that we worship. We ought not to respond like the crowd and be completely and totally indifferent. I'll never, I'll never forget being in, in the Holy Lands and... Uh, and being in Jerusalem, I was so excited to be there that first time. I remember 1985, and just being there, I thought, I could just live here forever. I just loved it so much. And then went back a number of times. Some of you went, and never forget that. The thing that really stuck out to me was the fact that along the spine, it's Jerusalem's on the top of a hill, 2,800 feet above sea level. Along the spine, it's kind of a rather narrow, not real narrow, but I mean, it's no more than maybe a couple miles you go south, you only go five miles south, and you're in Bethlehem. I had no idea it was so close. 
You know, you get this idea Bethlehem's over here somewhere in Jerusalem, and you know, you're kind of like, you can't put it all together spatially. Five miles. Now think of it. Here comes, here comes the wise men in. Where is he? Where is it? We've come a long way with all their dress and fanfare and, and all their wealth, and, and we sing We Three Kings. We don't know there were three. You know, some don't like to sing that because uh, we don't know if there's quite an entourage, and I think there was. We get three because uh, three gifts are mentioned. Could have been five of them brought gold and five of them brought uh, frankincense. We, we don't know. And the stir of the people. All they had to do was hoof it out five miles down the spine to come into Bethlehem and say, where is this one? We've been waiting for him since Genesis 3. Complete and utter indifference. And I'm saying to you, that's the world we live in. Oh, they'll give a cart. Season's greeting. If I hear that anymore, I'm going to get sick. <laughs> Holiday greetings. How about Merry Christmas? Thank you very much. It's the Christ of Christmas. I tell you, we can use this as a wonderful opportunity. People, we can turn it very easily to the Christ of Christmas and why he came and the giving of gifts to those that know not Christ, so we turn their eyes to the Savior, and who can say God may save them? I pray for and I talk to several men during the week, and, and it's, that's my prayer, my desire, that God will open their heart and save them. It's not happy holidays, it's Christ. Run down the road five miles to come and to adore Him and to respond appropriately the giving of the greatest gift ever. Well, third and finally, some respond to the news of his birth with worship and adoration. And what a stark contrast. In verses 9 through 12, we see just a few, it seems, respond in this way. Not many wise, but there are some. We, we discover here in verse 9, and let's just reiterate that one more time. And after they had heard the king, they went on their way and the star, this was probably the star, was not like the stars that you and I think of, heavenly bodies like the sun, but probably was a supernatural light or a, an appearance that maybe they alone saw, I don't know. Maybe it was similar, some of the writers talk about, to the, the light, the flaming fire that led the children of Israel through the wilderness wanderings. Uh, you remember that? and the cloud that was behind them. And so don't be greatly troubled by that. God announced that and provided that, and it led them to that spot. And so, and when they saw the star, that was, they were overjoyed. Um, and on coming to the house, and now you see they're no longer in the stable. There's been some time lapse, and maybe it's six months, maybe it's a year, maybe it's just about two. We know there was a period of time. Maybe Herod had all the male boys two and under. Just he went a little bit more to make sure he could wipe them out and, and hopefully catch this one who was called King of the Jews. But now Mary and Joseph, for whatever and all the reasons, are living there with the little child. Uh, and, and maybe Jesus is six months or a year at this point. We do not know. But the, they come to the house where... Mary is with Jesus and Joseph, and here they are in the text, verse 11, they bowed down and they worshiped him, completely contrasted to the response of, of others, and they worshiped him, and they opened their treasure and presented him with gifts of gold and incense and myrrh, and having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Well, the Magi, they're called wise men. They hear the news and they respond to it by traveling a long, long way. They were probably from Persia. That's modern-day Iran. Have you heard of that? Maybe Babylon from the east. I think they were further than, than Edom and some of that. They, 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 they were known for wisdom, but I think they were really further away. I think in reading some of the great writers, they, they, how did they know about this? And some suppose that may, if it was Babylon or maybe Persia, maybe they were acquainted with Daniel's writings and Daniel's teaching there in the court. 
And so they were well acquainted with that. And so through the generations then, and then God's appearance, especially to them, and God would not allow his son to come without uh, some glorification of himself, and so chose these outsiders. Spurgeon, writing about this whole occasion, puts it this way, the far off are near, and the near are far off. The far off being the magi are far away, but God is redeeming them and bringing them near. And those who are in the great vicinity that are up to here in the Old Testament and should have been looking for him are far off spiritually, lost, dead. What an account, the magi. And perhaps, uh, I say, they're from Persia, Babylon, and it read Daniel's writing, they traveled a long way, and when they found him, they fell on their faces, and they worshipped him. And they gave him gifts fit for a king. It's a glorious contrast. It's a reminder of a proper response to the giving of the greatest gift ever given. That we ought to come humbly and lowly and worship this one who is Christ the Lord. Not like Herod in deception and murderous thoughts, not in the indifference of the high priest or the priests, the Pharisees, or the common people. But what a contrast. That's what I want to be. I want to worship on my knees. I want to worship with bended heart and worship the Christ of Christmas. There was one other crew that I want to just turn. Look at Luke. Because there's a lowly group, and God in his infinite wisdom and grace and mercy brings the shepherds, and uh, they come. They uh, receive the announcement, and we all know that in Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, verses 8 and following, that God's angels announce to the shepherds the birth of the Lord Jesus, but they were not indifferent. They certainly weren't hostile. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. I bet they were. The angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy. That will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you, he's Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared to the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor dwells. And when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go. Look at that. What a contrast. I mean, this is, the, this is the bottom rung of the society. It's the grace of God, right? It says something about the theology of God's love for, for the lowly, the humble, the, outer, the outcast, if you will. That you should even appear to the shepherds. We have these romantic notions of shepherds, you know. Like, <laughs> you go live with the animals and that'll get rid of that in a hurry. They were the young boys, what have you. And they go huffing off, running, let us go and see this thing that we have been told about, which has happened. So they hurried off. They ran up the hill if shepherds field. Again, Bethlehem is on a ridge, and it drops down, and, and traditionally it's called shepherd's field and where they would have the sheep. And they would have had to run up the hill a mile or two to get into the little village area there where... Uh, they would ask, where is this place, the stable, the manger, the baby? And they found, uh, uh, just as the angels had said, look at verse 20. Here's their response. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they were told. So Luke tells us of the shepherds who heard the news, and they responded by going and seeing. And when they left the stable, they told everyone they met about the Savior. They told what they had seen, and so should we. 
glorifying and praising God. Worship, that's what worship is. The magi worshiped from afar. The shepherds, the lowly, came and worshiped. Those of the religious elite or the common people or the priest were grossly indifferent to the greatest of all news. Well, there may only be a few, but all of us should respond this Christmas. We ought to respond appropriately to the great news by worshiping Him with wonder, awe, and with praise. 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 You know, you must praise the Lord. One man writes, praise is natural in a necessary response to fully enjoy the object that is praised. He goes on to say, for example, when watching a football game on TV, it's natural to praise a tremendous play. To shout, wow, after a great catch in the end zone is only natural. But it's also necessary to fully enjoy the spectacular play. If you do not believe that it's necessary, the next time you watch a game, try not to express yourself at all. Just be muted. Others around you will probably wonder about you, but you'll quickly find that uh, you do not enjoy the action nearly as much as you do when you have the freedom to express yourself in praise and excitement. And some of you are pretty silly when you do it. You jump up and down, we scored, we scored, as if you're on the team, you know. <laughs> you're not even on the bench. You're not even in the stadium. You're in your lazy boy watching the game, you know. But it adds to it. Yippee! You know, there was a day when the king would come to town, the people, yippee! They'd shout, shout, shout. It enters into the praise and the joy and the excitement. And that's what it ought to be for us as we express the joy and the wonder of the coming of Christ at Christmas. It is not out, it is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. It is frustrating to have to discover a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is or to come suddenly to turn on the road upon some mountain valley of unexpected beauty and then have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than a tin can in a ditch. They hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. So C.S. Lewis says, we must enter into the praise and the shout and the sharing of it. And so should we do that with the coming, with the birth announcement and then the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ the Christ of Christmas. Oh, I ask, how will you respond? How have you responded? How will you respond? With hostility? Do you hate the Christ of Christmas? Do you hate the God, the Father? Some do. And maybe you do. It's not appropriate. It may be like the vast word, completely indifferent. Or like the few. The Magi. Those that were afar that came there, like the shepherds, praising God and telling everyone, I got to tell you what I saw, forever changed. That's the way we should respond. Well, lessons for our life, number one. In the midst of the sea of news, and don't we live in a sea of news, don't miss the really great news, the birth of Jesus. It's not like one after the other after the other, and all news is the same. All events are the same. They're not. But it can have a, a, a numbifying effect. When it comes, and it comes so fast you can't process it. Don't miss in, in that uh, stupefying event of the news media and all of that. The greatest of all news, the birth of the Lord Jesus. We're going to celebrate that birth here in a few days again. Let's really celebrate it. Number two, don't be surprised at the satanically inspired hatred of Jesus to the point of killing him. Don't be surprised by that. Not everybody is moved by the birth of Christ. You see it in our culture, trying to extinguish the, the, the Christmas greetings and the nativities and the stamp out, the manger scenes and all that. 
I mean, you see it out in the state of Washington, in the state house. They grudgingly have a nativity scene right next to it. A document of the atheist denying anything of the God and the Christ of Christmas. The only God that is. We, have a, a, we live in a world where Christ is utterly hated. Oh, it's dressed up, it's educated, it's put in a skepticism, but at the end of the day, many people would kill Christ if they could get their hands on him. They would do it. They do it. They love their sin. They hate God, and that's the reason for it. Romans 1. Don't be surprised by that. Don't be surprised. We're coming off a day in which our culture was more greatly influenced by, by Christian truth. And we are no longer in that day. We are tolerated. We are a sideshow anymore as Christians. But you know what? It's a great day to be alive. God has trusted us to live in this day. He didn't ask me if I wanted to be born during the Civil War days or days of the Revolution or days of the Reformation or the days of the 800s or the 300s or the B.C. days. He has trusted you and me to live today. And if he has saved you, He's given us a great job, and he's trusting us to be salt and life in a world of darkness, a world that hates the Christ of Christmas. And there are many. There are many. And number three, most people hear about Jesus. They do. They'll hear about it. And the media broadcast it. It's in print. It's on the radio, around the world. Most hear about it. Some live close and and hear much about it. Some grew up in Christian families and homes, went to churches where it was proclaimed, and yet it makes no difference on their day-to-day life. And I trust that's none of you. It ought to make all the difference in your life. For you belong to Christ if you're saved. That means all your members are Christ. Romans 6. All of your time is Christ. You are, you are his servants and slaves, bondservants. All of the, the talents he's given you are for his glory. And the birth of Christ and all that that involves, the atonement, the redemption, the purchased people for his glory, your treasury, your time, everything, your moment. It's not just Christmas. It's all year long, every day, as a result of that. And that's why I say most people hear about, it should be H-E-A-R, hear about Jesus, but most are indifferent. Don't let that be you. You are Christ if you have received him as your Lord and Savior. Don't let that be you. Number four, don't allow your familiarity with Christmas hinder your worship and praise of God this year. And if you have a sense of lethargic uh, this in your soul. Ask God to deal with you on that so that Christ of Christmas is like the first time it dawned upon your heart in life. Recognize it's the dullness that sin, even in the life of a believer, will rob you of the glory and the praise and the wonder and the awe of the excitement of the shepherds, the glory of that, the wonder and awe and the Worship of the Magi as they fell before him. May that be us in the picture. You know, let's get alone on our knees and ask God to search our heart and root out of us sin that would ground that so that we can be as effervescing, joyful, singing people of God among whom we shine as lights in a dark world, responding appropriately to the message of Christmas. And number five and last, if you have never trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, opportunity for you to respond even today. Maybe, maybe even during this message, God has worked in your heart and convinced you that you're a sinner, lost and under judgment. There's only a heaven and a hell. That's it. And as was mentioned in our testimony time, life is ever so brief and it is very, very tenuous at best. You could be here today and gone next week to either heaven or hell. And if you have never trusted Christ the Lord, it's not my opinion, it's the clear teaching of the Word. You are lost. And your death will seal your eternity. And it will never be changed. Today is the day. Ask the Lord Jesus to save you. 
and receive the Christ of Christmas, the one who in years would die on the cross to pay for sin. He died in your place. Receive him as the Lord of glory, your Savior, and be saved. Well, we live in a news-saturated day, don't we? 24-7, global news, the BBC, Al Jazeera. Actually, I did like watching Al Jazeera. They gave a lot of interesting stories that I don't see. I won't get into that now, but all sorts of things. Don't allow the saturation of all the news that bombards us, and it does, to rob you of the greatest news and hinder you from the right response to it. Let's worship afresh the Christ of Christmas. Shall we do that? Let's stand be dismissed. Thank you.